McClellan. Hello, Jason. Hello, Mr. Alejandro. It's my pleasure to be doing the show with you again. Yeah, this is awesome. So, okay, what we're going to do, we're going to start off the show a little different than we used to. What we used to do was go through the news of the week. Uh, Jason would present the news, we would talk about it, we would be very witty, and it would be a lot of fun. However, Jason's got a web series, uh, which is also a podca- uh, podcast with Maureen called Spacing Out, and they already do the news. We already have something that does the news, and it's kind of more sophisticated, and we got lots of cool stuff going on there. So for the weekly news, go check out Spacing Out. However, Jason and I are still going to discuss our top stories. So uh, in this case, we're going to go back a couple weeks just because uh, I got sick, you know, some of you saw on my Twitter that uh, we were going to have the show last Monday, but I got my gallbladder removed last week, so I couldn't do that. But uh, there were some cool news stories that came out of the conference, and that's what I wanted to talk about. But let's start off with, Jason, your top story of the week. Well, thanks for putting the pressure on there, dude. All right. Well, there were a lot of interesting stories, in my opinion, the past couple of weeks, Um but I think I'm going to have to, for my initial selection here, I'm going to go with Mars. It, there were a couple stories related to Mars. And in particular, we're talking about the habitability of Mars. And it was the big announcement, made a lot of headlines when NASA announced that their awesome robot on Mars, Curiosity, the Curiosity rover, um, drilled into some rock and found out by analyzing the, the, the samples collected from the rock that at one point, Ancient Mars was habitable, had a habitable environment. So with that said, um, th- there's been a lot of talk about the habitability of Mars recently. And not only was ancient Mars habitable, according to these scientists, but uh, two weeks ago, other scientists announced that uh, based on a lot of what they're finding on Mars, they think that present-day Mars could also be habitable. And we're talking about, you know, life in in various forms, and they're looking at life as we know it, but most likely what they're talking about right now is microbial life. They're looking at a possible chemical energy source and and indications that hint that microorganisms could possibly still be surviving on Mars. And I've been a proponent of that for the longest time, and I think the best place to look is in the subterranean world of Mars. We've seen evidence of lava tubes and potential for this huge underground world on Mars where liquid water probably still exists and could be a great place 
for current day life on Mars. So that is an exciting story to me from last week. And right along with that, I want to mention uh, a story that came back up last week, and that is uh, a claim by a mainstream scientist that uh, a fossil has proof of extraterrestrial life. Now, this is coming from a meteorite that was recovered in Sri Lanka at the end of 2012. And this team initially came out with their study saying, look, we, we looked at this meteorite, we analyzed it, and to us it looks like we found fossilized diatoms, these uh, microscopic algae that look like they were fossilized, indicating really old algae and looks like it came from space. So in the minds of these scientists, that proves that there, that extraterrestrial life exists. Now, as with all of these studies that happen, and this isn't the first study that would suggest something like this, but it's come under harsh criticism and people criticize the tests that were done and tell these scientists, you know, you did this test, but you didn't do this other test, and that's what you should have done. There are always criticisms, and it doesn't seem like scientists ever agree. This isn't a problem isolated to ufology or to any particular field. It seems to be a human condition, but science is especially bad. Scientists never agree with each other, but you know, this is a, a study that was done by really well-respected scientists, mainstream scientists, done by two universities, and tests are still being done on this. It's going to be highly debated. I don't think we're going to see any agreement on this anytime soon, but the fact that multiple tests are showing and hinting that it could possibly be fossilized diatoms in a meteorite, it's kind of exciting news. We'll see where it goes, but potentially additional evidence for the scientific community in support of extraterrestrial life. My, that's my... Uh, Exciting pick for the week, Alejandro. Well, right off the bat, the first time we try this, and you cheat and you do two stories. Well, you they're know, good stories, though. It the one played off the other. You know, I was talking about yeah, habitability yeah. on Mars and looking for extraterrestrial life, and I couldn't help but jump into that one too <laughs> because that was also from around the same time period. So exciting news in the search for extraterrestrial life. Well, I have a comment on on each, and I'd like to hear what you think. Like. Please do. I, because I was thinking about that, that Mars story, just like you were talking about. And so they find evidence that Mars was habitable because it had these different uh, ingredients, for lack of a better word, right. that life would um, uh, need. However, if they found those ingredients on Mars, that means they're still there on Mars because they found them there, which would mean that Mars is right now habitable, I would think. Well, I would think that as well. I'm, I'm thinking perhaps because the, these elements were found in drilled rock, they're saying that at some point, you know, based on the, the layers of rock and, you know, the, the passage of time, that at the depth they drilled at that point in time, whenever that may have been, that's what conditions were like on the planet. So I, I think that's where they're getting the, the ancient claim that when those layers were laid down – on the planet, it indicates what conditions were like at that time in history. Mm -hmm. However, I, you make a good point, and you know everything Curiosity is finding, uh, for the most part, was already found by previous rovers years earlier. But we're now getting corroborating evidence, and you know, there's there's always well not always, but regularly we hear of 
responses to evidence found that, well, we don't really know what that means. That's, it's likely it's contamination from the rover itself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're, we're always going to hear that. It doesn't, I, I don't think it matters if they scoop up a alien finger. They're still going to say, oh, it could be a contamination. Yeah. Until we have people up there, actual manned missions doing the science on Mars itself, I, I don't think everybody's going to be happy and conclusively say, yes, extraterrestrial life is here on Mars. But I'm I'm with you. I think a lot of a lot of indicators are pointing to that stuff still being on Mars. Those elements for life still being on Mars today. What's really unfortunate with the curiosity, I think, is is frustrating. Is now they're looking for evidence of organics, and it can find chemicals and elements. But the sad part is, it from what I've uh, discussed with other people on the show the astrobiologist we had earlier, and uh, from what I've heard the NASA scientists saying, they don't have like uh, microscopes and things to be able to look, to be able to confirm anything that is an actual fossil. They can find elements that suggest so, but they're going to have to send up a whole different rover, kind of get into that xenoarchaeology, but they're going to have to send up something completely different to confirm Anything that they do find, uh, it was a fossil, unless it's big enough where it shows up on a, on a, the cameras that are on Curiosity now. Curiosity is a highly sophisticated piece of machinery. It is a rolling science laboratory, but you're exactly right. It's extremely limited. It's only equipped with certain instruments that can do certain tests. It you know, is lacking in a lot of areas. It doesn't have those microscopes. It's got amazing cameras, but it doesn't have the necessary tools to do a lot of testing that really needs to be done to confirm life. So. And then finally, the second story actually you mentioned is even more exciting to me because, um, uh, you know, the, the evidence of bacteria or fossils in these asteroids is really exciting because the door's not shut on a lot of uh, now two or three of these samples and uh of course science being the way it is that you know you have to a really high bar of to meet to prove something as actually a fossil but it's exciting that at the same time the people purporting these things to be extraterrestrial fossils uh are finding more things to support their ideas uh but they're being you know some people are arguing against them those people arguing against, though, cannot completely shut the door. They don't have evidence to point for sure that these scientists are, who are making these claims are completely wrong. So the door's still open, and those are really exciting, I think. It is. And, you know, here's here's another big issue with, with science. And, you know, this is something that hinders advancement. You, you know, you'd think scientists would be open to, to new thoughts and, and consider all possibilities and, and really explore and, and try to find new things because we know so as much as some scientists would like to think we know everything there is to know about everything we know so little and when it comes to talking about life we know even less you know we, we have life as we know it we know these certain things about life and then when so it much... comes to women oh forget it uh. yeah yeah exactly Believe me, I'm I'm married and have no idea anything about them. But that's that's not the story here, Alejandro. Oh, but the, the the thing that a lot of science, well, some scientists, and in this particular case with the story about this Sri Lankan meteorite, is some scientists like to focus on the viewpoints of the particular scientists involved in these studies, and 
use that as something to criticize them on. Right. For example, the, the main scientist behind this study, Chandra Wickramsinghe, is a huge proponent of the theory of panspermia, the thought that life was transported from elsewhere in the universe to here on Earth from, you know, like life hanging on to a meteorite or something like that crashing to Earth. Um, it's an interesting theory, and it's got merit. Uh, but because the lead person involved in this study is a huge proponent of panspermia, he gets the, the whole study here gets criticized because he's a proponent of that theory, and therefore he's crazy. So the study must be crazy, too, and he can't be trusted. Yeah, by the bad science guy. That, that guy's frustrating. Skeptics, oh, skeptical people, and you know it's it's okay to be skeptical, and and I think or I a mean, lot of people. Yeah, I call him a skeptic. Yes, more yes, so no. I'm I, I'm glad you clarified yeah. that. There is a difference between skeptical thinking and being a, a skeptic just for the sake of being a skeptic, and yeah. that that doesn't help anybody. All right. Well, then, if it's okay, I'm going to move on to my story. I would love to hear your story. Hey, just because story. I doesn't mean you can do plural as well. Well. Uh, you're all right. Go for it. You you deserve it. I cheated this week. I was going to just talk about um, James Fox and his, uh, you know, one of what I thought was a more exciting, more fun uh, thing that he talked about. But I guess we could talk about both of the things real quick that he talked about that we thought were newsworthy, you know, that we wrote about. And just that James Fox, you know, had a couple of exciting things. First of all, he's working with some people uh, to create a documentary. And uh, in this documentary, they hope to um, put a spotlight on what is really going on with UFOs, which is kind of like saying they have their own theory that is a little different than the others. So that's kind of interesting. But along with that, of course, they're offering $100,000 for proof of uh, UFOs or ET lights. So we wrote about that. And if you want to know more about how to cash in on this, you know, go to openminds.com and you'll find that. However, the story I felt was more exciting, just because I'm a big Spielberg fan and I love to follow Spielberg and his UFO stuff, was that uh, even though we kind of reported that something happened, in fact, uh, we called the story Only Spielberg Knows What He Saw, uh, because Larry King had given Spielberg a copy of I Know What I Saw, James Fox's great UFO documentary. Uh, then Spielberg had written back to Larry King about the documentary. However, Spielberg's publicist would not let the details of that letter be known. So we didn't know what the heck was in the letter. Well, finally, James Fox said he sent the publicist an email saying, hey, I'm going to speak at this UFO Congress. I'm going to talk about the letter and uh, if you have a problem with that, let me know. And he felt that since the publicist had not replied, that that gave him carte blanche to finally read the letter. And I thought the letter was a lot of fun because uh, he essentially said that he liked the documentary. He's devoted a lot of his movies to the themes of UFOs and that he unfortunately hasn't seen an UFO. And he put, that is so unfair, exclamation mark. But... Uh, the comment in particular that he made is that he hoped that someday our government will offer a total disclosure about what they know about unidentified flying objects and their true and natural origins. And I guess that just gets me so excited because um, you can see that Spielberg is a UFO buff like us. Uh, you know, he's debatably one of, if not the, one of the best director uh, 
in the world. I mean, he's created some of the biggest movies ever, including Lincoln, which was great. I don't know if you saw it, Jason. But, uh, yeah, that's my story is that I'm just uh, really happy that we got to see this letter. And uh, to me, that was really exciting. That's a great pick. And, you know, some people wonder when we report on stories about celebrities or, or anything from Hollywood related to UFOs and wonder, you know, why we're we're covering news that seems more fit for a, a gossip magazine or a, or a celebrity gossip magazine. And I don't know. Sometimes these, these are my favorite stories because mm-hmm. to me, when we see something from pop culture addressing UFOs um, and addressing it in, in sort of a serious manner, it gets the public's attention. The public, obviously, pop culture is interested in pop culture. So what what celebrities and known people when they're talking about UFOs or extraterrestrials, that generates headlines, and it also allows the the, the mainstream public to see, oh, wow, Steven Spielberg takes UFOs seriously. Well, maybe uh, it's not such a goofball subject after all, and I, I can actually look into it for myself, and it's not so weird. I mean, people look up to, to celebrities for, for whatever reason they have, and when a celebrity comes out and voices their personal opinion about UFOs or extraterrestrials, that makes it more approachable for them. So in my mind, that's why celebrity or, or anybody in pop culture, when they talk about UFOs and extraterrestrials, that's why it's newsworthy. Exactly. That's the big deal. I mean, we talk so much about the giggle factor and uh, eliminating that. And I think when we see pop culture people brave enough or feeling comfortable to talk about UFOs and our UFO sightings, like, you know, we got that sort of reply with Kendall Jennings, one of the Kardashian girls said she saw a UFO and tweeted about it. You know, that's a big deal that these people are feeling comfortable to talk about UFOs. I think that shows that the giggle factor is waning and um, that we're moving into a new era where it's not such a fringe topic, I think, which will get everything going better uh, in this field. Yep, I agree. I mean, pop pop culture is playing a huge role in in that, and you know, with all the movies and television shows, and UFOs permeate every every area of pop culture now, uh, music, television, film, and when we have so many uh, so many of these projects, you and living in the media saturated world and social media and just plugged in world we live in now, uh, there's so much coverage for all, all of these these elements coming out, these projects, and when the Media does interviews with these people involved in the various television or film projects or music projects related to UFOs or extraterrestrials. It is really good and it gets a lot of people interested in the subject because they generally ask these people acting in the films or TV shows or whatever their personal views on UFOs and aliens. If they've had their own sighting or experience and you know, addressing it more and more in a serious way, just asking these people and their stories come out and again – Fans of theirs hear them telling their stories, and that makes it more in, into the main uh, uh, topic in the mainstream that can be talked about. And people don't feel like it's a crazy subject, and they can start sharing their own stories too. Right. All right. Well, thank you, Jason. That is our news, hot news section of the show, and of course, we still have interviews. So coming up next, we have an interview with Joan Bird. She just wrote a book called Montana UFOs and Extraterrestrials. So it's kind of cool. She lives in Montana, so she decided to focus on some of the great cases in Montana. And she's a very interesting lady. 
She actually uh, has a Ph.D. in zoology, and she's done a lot of writing uh, for nature magazines about various different wildlife and animals and parks and uh, kind of fish and wildlife type of stuff. And she also has been a longtime member of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which you might recognize because that is a group that Edgar Mitchell is also a part of. So let's go ahead and talk to Joan. Hello, I have Joan on the phone. How are you? I'm doing great, Alejandro. How about yourself? Good. I'm really excited to have you on. Uh, your book is beautiful. I mean, in this field, a lot of people don't have very nice artwork on their books, I've got mm-hmm. to say. But yours is really nice. Oh, thank you so much. I really love the cover, too. It wasn't actually my idea. It was the publisher's, but I love it. And the mountain that's on it is actually called Heaven's Peak, and it's in Glacier National Park, and I like that a lot, too. Okay, cool. Yeah, because that's what Montana's known for, it's, its natural beauty. Mm-hmm. So I assume you live in Montana. I do. I've been here since 1973. Since 1973, so quite some time. More than anywhere else, yeah, although I was not born here. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely consider myself a Montanan at this point. Right. Definitely, I think you can. And what got you then um, interested in, or what sparked the idea to write a UFO book? Well, there's kind of, you know, a long chain of events that builds into that. But the thing that really precipitated the idea in the first place was reading about the UFOs over the nuclear missile silos and the Mm -hmm. shutdowns of the nuclear missile silos. I just thought that was uh, such huge information. And I wanted more people to know about it, and I was sort of dismayed that that information was being withheld and that more people didn't know about it. So I started thinking about, okay, how could I how could I communicate this in a way that it would at least reach people in Montana, that at least the people that I know that are intelligent and like to believe that they're informed and like to know the history of their state, how could I, maybe I could write a book that was just uh, confined to Montana because there's a lot of other cool stuff that's happened in Montana. And the subject is so huge and the literature is so vast I know that when I first got into it, I was overwhelmed, and I kind of picked up books at random, and each one sort of has its own little angle or its own focus, but it's a very big jigsaw puzzle, and I, my, part of my intention there was to also create a book that was a good uh, entry-level book for people who are new to the subject to kind of you know, touch on several different aspects of the phenomenon and also some history of it, so you know, kind of ease them through the door was my thought. Right, which is a great idea. I think that's one thing that's nice about your book. You're not trying to take on too much, um, you're try- but you're taking a few great cases and just giving them a good amount of attention. Mm-hmm, yeah. Which uh, kind of bite-sized pieces for people. Right, so, bite-sized and a little pre-digested. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So Maelstrom is what you're referring to in 1967, and when was it that you heard about that case? I think that I first heard about it in Linda Moulton Howe's book, Glimpses of Other Realities, and how I got a hold of that book was that there had been some crop circles that had happened in Montana. And I've just always been interested in in sort of unexplained phenomenon. I talk in the book about how, you know, I come with these these two sides. My father was an aeronautical engineer. I have a very strong uh, science background. I have a doctorate in zoology. So I, I look at things analytically and critically. But then I also have a mother who was a deeply spiritual person and a near-death experiencer. So I'm kind of interested in, you know, both aspects. Uh, So 
when I heard about those crop circles, I cut out the article. I couldn't really get to it at the time, but not too much longer after that, somebody asked me if I would research it for a magazine. And I I, uh, got that out and went down to the Historical Society here in Helena, which is very conveniently located, about 15 minutes from my house, and found the article up in Whitefish, Montana, which is near Glacier National Park, where they actually had a picture of the crop circle from the air. And I called the reporter that had put it into that weekly newspaper up there, and he said, yeah, we're pretty sure this one was done by kids because it's close to the community college north of Kalispell. We found pegs and and, uh, twine and and the night before or a couple nights before, the Discovery Channel had shown their documentary on crop circles in which they really emphasized Doug and Dave, the old guys that had the boards mm-hmm. and the rope. So he thinks he was pretty sure, and it did sound like it was man-made. But what was interesting, in the meantime, I, I really started looking at the crop circle research and and uh, in England and was very impressed with the scientific studies that had shown that definitely some of the crop circles were not being made by humans and they were being made by an unexplained energy. So I got very excited about that. And then uh, one night we were listening to, actually my husband was driving around and he said there's this woman on the radio talking about crop circles and came in and it was coast to coast. And it was Linda Moulton Howe and she had a new book. So I just ordered the book thinking it would be about crop circles and it really was much more about UFOs. And the first chapter was Military Witnesses. And, and Robert Solis's story. So I, I read that then, and you know that was one of the first things I read. But it it didn't really hit me until I heard him speak at the 2001 uh, disclosure hearings that were at the National mm-hmm. Press Club that the Disclosure Project put on. And and then it began to sink in. It was, you know, then then the you know just what a an incredible piece of information this was. What a game changing piece of information that was began to hit me. Right. So, yeah. And for you, what are the parts of that case that you think, you know, the public really should know about? Well, that it's not just happened in one place. It's happened in many different uh, nuclear missile installations in this country, in Minot, North Dakota, and Ellsworth uh, Air Force Base in South Dakota, and Effie Warren in Wyoming. I think I heard at the 2013 um International UFO Congress, I think Grant Cameron said it's also occurred at other installations across the northern states because he seems so much about what's happened in Canada and is aware of those. I wasn't so much aware of the ones in the eastern part of the state. But I guess the piece that really nails it is when uh, Glasnost happened and, um, and the Soviet Union came unraveled under Gorbachev, there was a period when a lot of Russian military people uh, they were no longer under oath to keep secrets, and they could talk about things. And there were two Russians that came out. One of them was a commander who was not actually at the site, but was aware of this situation and uh, researched it later. And then somebody who was actually at the site where they had not a shutdown, but an activation. Their nuclear missiles went into launch mode. And they talked about wow. how, how terrifying that was for 15 seconds while they're watching the clock tick. Nobody had given them the order to turn on. They didn't know how this had happened, but there were UFOs over the launch, over the controls, you know, hovering above the uh, launch facilities while this happened. And, uh, you know, it just must have been totally terrifying. And after 15 seconds, then the missiles were deactivated altogether. So it's not uh, it hasn't just happened in one place in time, and I just think that there's a powerful message there 
to anybody, whether you are a peace activist who would like to see nuclear disarmament, which Robert Salas has become, or whether you think you know that uh, it's important for the United States to maintain military superiority over the entire planet, it kind of makes that a moot point, you know. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly, and maybe that's what it's kind of about. Yeah. Little demonstration. So, how have the people in Montana taken this information? As far as when you kind of did, you, do you think many people out there really knew about the event? No, mm-hmm. no, not very many people. It's just not widely known. You know that I talk about. There is this wall, and for most people, that wall is not even known to them. And I mean, that's how I felt. That when I began to read this information, it was like I walked through a door that I didn't know was there. And I think that that relates a lot back to the program that was initiated in 1953 to kind of quell the public's fascination with the topic. And I think that there were some justifiable reasons for that. But when the Robertson panel came to the conclusion that they needed to dampen the public's enthusiasm because so many reports are being called in, and and yes, by golly, a lot of them are explainable. You know, probably the, the majority of them are explainable. And that was creating a lot of noise in the system as they were trying to figure out what the Soviets were doing. We were in the early days of the nuclear arms race. We had a war going on with North Korea. It was a tense, intense time. And so they decided to initiate this program where they said, we recommend that we hire celebrities, we hire scientists, we hire media people, we hire psychologists, and we figure out how to deliver a message that uh, curtails this uh, obsession, really, that the public had with UFOs in that time because there were so many sightings that were happening, and use ridicule, uh, make fun of the people that are witnesses, and get the psychologists to say, well, you know, people need attention, uh, it's so easy to confuse it with other things, blah, 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 that it really had a huge impact on the mass psyche. And I think we're still dealing with that. Mm-hmm. So there is this, it's kind of like people don't even, they just, they can't go there. There's there's that, but then there's also just our human resistance, our psychological resistance to changing our worldviews. And I think that may be as important as the government uh, suppression of the information and even the, the campaign that came out of the Robertson panel. Right. So, and talking about this wall, it is, you know, kind of the situation where when a topic is brought up and, and UFOs are a part of it, even though, of course, UFOs being seen at a nuclear, near nuclear silos where they turn off is such a big thing. I mean, historically, but if you add the term UFO, people kind of turn off and don't listen too much. Is that what you kind of uh, are, are talking about? At right. least, and, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's an automatic knee jerk response, you know. So I, I was really, you know, I guess what I did was really um, take whatever personal recognizance I have in this state, and I have worked in a number of different capacities. I'm a, I'm a graduate from the University of Montana. I finished mm-hmm. a doctoral program in zoology there, so I have a lot of, of contacts. Um, I have historically, it was quite a few years ago now, <laughs> at the university. I worked in a number of conservation organizations, a lot of grassroots organizations. I worked for the state doing conservation work. I've worked on... on uh, Women's empowerment. Um, done workshops. I've done an annual retreat event called Celebrating Women that draws from women all over. So I have these. I have many networks that I have worked in, and we joke in Montana about how because the population just passed one million in the last census, we don't have 
all that many people here. So we joke about how we are like Montana. The state of Montana is like a city with very long streets. <laughs> when you when you work in a specific area like conservation, as I have had, or in in uh, women's issues, as I have, you get to know people all over the state pretty much. Especially, uh, I, I worked on state natural areas conferences for a while, and then I really did work all over the state. When I was working for the Nature Conservancy, I traveled all over the state. I was the protection planner. I was looking at uh, pristine and uh, pristine uh, natural communities, and also at environments that harbored rare species. So I just had a lot of contacts, and I just decided, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna blow every bit of credibility that I have here and put this out, and I do know a lot of people, and I have good credentials, and say, it's time we start paying attention to this. And there's been, I think, a, a, an excellent response. Uh, I've had people that I did not expect uh, come up to me and, and tell me their own stories uh, about sightings, and that was part of my hope, is we're going to lift the lid on this thing. We're going to allow more people to feel safe to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And, and the book has done very well. Um, in, in fact, the friend of mine is who works for this small publishing company, who's a regional, who who just publishes regional titles, who suggested me uh, to do this book five years ago. She says that the book has done better than any book they've had in the eight years that she's been there. Great. It's really taken off. We're in the second printing. Uh, the media has been wonderful. I just haven't, you know, I'm sure there are people, I mean, I, I have people that I know that, um, have just kind of gone mum, you know, they're not saying right. anything. But a lot of people that I was surprised at have shown interest. A lot of people have said to me it changed their minds. That's that great. Yeah, that they didn't believe before, but they read it. In fact, there's an Amazon review, and I don't even know who the person is, who says, I was a skeptic, I read the book, it changed my mind. And that, you know, if I can change a few minds, that's that was my great hope for the book. Well, that's what's important, and that's what's really what I get excited about is, like you said, someone with your credentials, a community organizer, working in topics that aren't really so taboo, um, mm-hmm. and then being brave enough to come forward and say, hey, this is something else I'm interested in. There's some great information here that I want to share with you yeah. know, my community. Um, when you go talk to them, especially people who maybe have not uh, really given much thought to the topic, uh, have they been uh, accepting, and uh, has it been eye-opening for many of them? I think so, but you know, you, you're kind of selecting already who shows up for a talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, you know, I or I guess I mean uh, some of the people that you work with on some of these other projects. Yes, yes, a number of them have, but uh, but a lot of them know that I've been working on this for a while too. I've kind of okay. drug, drug many of my friends along with me. You know? I <laughs> Like they, they already know you as that. They already knew they, that I was into this stuff, and, and I was already. Yeah, I, I have this UFO list of people that okay. If you're interested in learning more about this, get on my UFO list, and I feed them information. You know, I um, a, a slow education process, uh, interesting tidbits, um, people that are significant who are making statements about it that are convincing. You know, so I've been doing that for. Uh, a number of years now, even before I started work on the book, because I, I wanted to inform more people, and I was paying a lot of attention to it, and I like to share information. I'm a networker and a communicator, and mm-hmm. so I've been doing that for a while. So I've been kind of cultivating a group that is learning about the phenomenon. 
which is great, and, and it makes a lot of sense because you're a communicator, so you didn't kind of do this in a box. You were very uh, communicative and, and to to your group already that you were already working on this kind of stuff. Right, right. So so a number of those people, they were kind of aware of it, but a lot of them, you know, I thought they were farther along. I mean, they're kind to me, I guess. <laughs> I right. That they were they were already pretty on board with it, but then they say they read the book and they understand so much more and they really get it now. And and then they want me to come and talk to their groups, you know. And oh, cool. So it's very gratifying. And I've been, I've had a lot of, of uh, speaking engagements and, and it's fun. A lot of different kinds of groups, so... Well, and you've chose some great cases. So, of course, there's the one we talked about with uh, the nuclear case um, Mm -hmm. at Maelstrom. But another important case that I think uh, these days a lot of people are not aware of is the Great Falls video from 1950s you cover. Um, How did you run across that and how did you feel about it and what kind of – what do you think is important about that case? Oh, that is such an amazing story. Mm-hmm. And it's one that, you know, I think Montanans uh, should be duly proud of. Um, when did I first hear about that? I guess I was kind of vaguely aware of it, but I didn't know that, that much about it until there was an article actually published in Montana Magazine about that, how they had changed the name of the Great Falls Selectrics, the uh, minor league baseball team mm-hmm. that's up in Great Falls that is a farm team for the Dodgers, I believe. To the Voyagers, they're changing the name to the Voyagers, mm-hmm. and that the mascot was going to be this little green alien guy named Orbit, because of Mariana's 1950 film. And um, there's a local historian named John Axline who had actually written that article, and I talked to him about it. So I thought I was going to be writing this cute little chapter, <laughs> you know, with pictures of of the menus, so Voyager burgers and Orbit dogs, and uh, and pictures of of him going around, he circles the the ballpark at the beginning of every game to the theme of Star Wars. Oh wow! You know, which is this wonderful triumphant theme. Mm-hmm. But the but it's like 15 seconds of movie film, and what's more, Mariana claims, and I believe him, and there were many witnesses that believed him, and even the Condon committee investigators said when they went to Great Falls, the majority of people in Great Falls back him up in his belief that the best footage was taken by the Air Force when it was in their hands. And and so as I'm uh, beginning to research this film, I am astounded at how prominently it figures in every one of the government UFO research projects, beginning with Grudge. Mm-hmm. Sign was actually came before, but then uh, when, the, when he took the film, Grudge was, was the project, and then there was Blue Book, and when Blue Book presented their results to the Robertson panel, Ed Rupold, who was in charge of, of Blue Book, said that the Mariana UFO film was one of his best pieces of evidence, and he saved it for the last, along with this film from Tremont in Utah by um, a guy named Newhouse, who was a Navy photographer. And Newhouse said the same thing. He said that they also, when he turned his film in, that what they gave him back was a poor copy minus the best footage, minus wow. the close-up footage. And when he submitted his his uh, film to the Navy Photography Analysis Lab, they came back with reports that, that said, these are not birds, these are not balloons, these are not planes, these are self-luminous objects. And yet, the Robertson panel decided that they were seagulls. 
And I, there's this wonderful clip of film where J. Allen Hynek, who was the consultant to many of these research projects and the astronomer and the scientist, who over a period of time became converted to believe that it was a real phenomenon. He, um, what he said about the Robertson panel was that they could, they could not, they really were not able to say that it was an unknown. It had to be something known, so it had to be. So they called it birds, they called it seagulls. But it was, I mean, here, here they have these government reports saying it couldn't be that, and yet that's what they decided. Well, that's what. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that's what was interesting about that period of time because, and you know, Ruppelt in his book writes a lot about this and the, the hard time that they had. And Heineck yeah. talked about it is by being open and looking at doing some investigation into these cases, mm-hmm. um, which they used to do at least. Uh, yeah. They they always were pressured to come up with some kind of answer. Uh, they couldn't leave it with just unknown. Whereas now they just don't even look into them. That's why some of these cases are so great and you have this history like you're talking about because mm-hmm. they actually looked at them and they had to, to, to deal with them. Yes. And actually, I mean, it, it is the case that Ruppelt and also uh, Dewey Fournay, who did this special examination of some of the best footage that they had of craft and the maneuvers that they were capable of and all of that, they came to the conclusion that we were being visited by extraterrestrials and that whoever was piloting this craft had intelligence that exceeded human intelligence. That was the result of their, that was the conclusion of Blue Book when they presented it to the Robertson panel. It was also the case with um, Project Sign. Right. You know, Twyman told them to you know, get this research project underway and after they had been working on the sightings that they knew about it back in the 48 and 49, they did an estimate of the situation, the EOTS, which is so famous. Rupel talked about it in 48. They had both seen it. Mm-hmm. And the conclusion of that estimate of the situation was, yes, we are being visited by extraterrestrials. So there are two times in the government investigations when the investigators came to that conclusion, and yet when they produced the report saying that and ran them up the ladder, up the hierarchy, they were rejected as uh, they they could not release them. They could not release them. Right. And so that report, that, EO, that estimate of the situation, disappeared. It has not reappeared yet. Uh, and yet we have testimony from highly credible people that, yes, it did exist, and yes, that was what its conclusion was. Mm-hmm. Which is always interesting because, like you said, you know, when you get into this, you maybe a case that you hear about and you think, oh, that's interesting. You know, there might be a few things I can look into. But as you find, uh, there's just so much to this, and and it is interesting uh, that a lot of this comes from official sources or the government. I mean, yes, the Air Force was the first one to come up with the term UFOs. Their first conclusion was that they were extraterrestrial. I mean, this all comes from the Air Force. So when yes. people wonder, why do you guys think this kind of stuff? Well, that's yeah. what the Air Force told us. Yeah, it's amazing. It's totally mm-hmm. amazing. And then there was, I didn't. Well, I was not aware of the 1956 UFO documentary, which is an amazing film. It's just a classic old uh, film. And I show a clip of it when I do talks on it, the clip or the interview, um, Nick Mariana, and they show the footage. And, you know, it's not very impressive footage. I mean, when you look at it, it's, you know, it's fuzzy, and the, and the film has lots of, you know, fuzz on it. And it's pretty, um, it's not that impressive film. 
and yet it's still some of the best evidence out there, even if we did mm-hmm. lose lose the best footage, as, as Mariana said. So that documentary, they were able to get some of those government um, people that had worked in Blue Book. Rupal was one of them. Uh, Fournay was the other one. And Al Chop, who'd been an information officer, they all they were all very disappointed with the Robertson panel. And they didn't know that Robertson was working for the CIA and that the CIA was behind that panel and that everybody, every one of those high-ranking uh, scientists, physicists, astronomers that came from universities who had never been exposed to this kind of information before, for whom it was all new, and of course they all believe it is impossible that this can't happen, so therefore it doesn't happen. Anyway, in addition to that, they'd been told came out years later that they could not come to the conclusion that we were being visited that they you know that was out of bounds they had to right. find uh, explanations for everything so Rupolt and Fournay and and Chop they were all very um disappointed they just felt that they were these guys were not willing to stick their necks out because they mm-hmm. felt like they presented evidence that could convince anybody so one of the things that they did was uh, when they were invited to be part of this documentary they all some uh some of them were actually in the film. And then they had actors to portray, I think, Al Chop. But they did interview Mariana. I think that um, Dewey Fournay might have been in the film. I'm not positive about that. But they also got the, the director of that film. Um, his name was Green, Green Rouse Productions. He got affidavits from every one of them. And he put them in a, um, what do you call it, a, in a safe, in a, you know, a safety deposit box. He had been. He got affidavits from all of the government people that had been involved with it, saying that this information was true to the best of their knowledge. And then he uh, locked up those affidavits in a safety deposit box. He was determined to get the best information he could. And they also hired an engineer to analyze the Mariana film, James Baker, who he wrote up a a, a little analysis of at that time. But later on. He testified in congressional hearings, and he wrote an article that came out in the Journal of Astronomical Science in 1968, pretty much saying there's no way this could have been jet aircraft, which was what the Robertson panel tried to write off the Mariana film as. And I don't, I don't remember what the final conclusion of Blue Book was. I think because Rupert left, and later on they may have tried to write it off as aircraft, even though Rupert said no, no way it can be aircraft. He went back and looked at the records, and yes, they had seen jets after they'd seen UFOs, and they were in a different came in from a different part of the sky and couldn't have been that. But that has been the, uh, the, the explanation that has been used. And so here's this, this um, scientific paper that says, no, it couldn't have been aircraft. If it had been aircraft, you would have been able to tell they were aircraft. The, the objects are so fuzzy that they had to be so far away, which means they're going way faster than those F-14s could have gone. So anyway, it's it's a very long, fascinating story in that little piece of film, even in the Condon committee report, you know, Condon saying that there's nothing to it, the headlines in the paper says we're not being visited, and yet when you go and look at the Condon report, the one that did the photographic analysis, he says, you know, that that the possibility of explaining these as aircraft is very weak, mm-hmm. that we, you know, that his conclusion was that they were unknowns, and that's in the Condon report. I, well, more than 20% of the UFO reports that they investigated turned out to be unknowns, and yet Condon made those ridiculous summary statements. Mm -hmm. So are these all topics that you cover when you go talk to uh, these groups? It kind of depends on the group. You know, I can Mm -hmm. do it. I can do it. I can do a easily a one-hour presentation just on Mariana. Right. Um, And that's kind of a fun one to do because between sports fans and people that recognize 
the credentials of the University of Montana Journalism School, which has been nationally recognized for for its quality and the quality of the people, it turns out. And it turns out that Nick Mariano was a graduate of that school, and he always kept the camera with him, and he was he was a very capable journalist. So there are a number of different angles to to come at this uh, story about. Plus, you know, everybody loves baseball, so. I'm, I do sometimes just talk about Mariana. Plus, his son lives here in Montana, and delightfully is a videographer, which I think is, is um, fun. Oh, that um, is interesting. <laughs> yes. So you know, and people. That's that's another uh, thing about the book is that people in Montana, we know these places. You know, we know mm-hmm. at the time that um, Mariana took that film, Great Falls was the biggest city in the state. Uh, so it's a very important place. Everybody, you know, knows about Great Falls and they know, and the the big uh, Anaconda smokestack is part of our history. Um, so th- these are places. These are names. Uh, the Mariana, Mariana had this sports show where he would predict the outcomes of high school and college teams all over the state. So he was very well known. And when you can make those kinds of connections, it just makes it more real for people. Mm-hmm. So it depends on the audience. I mean, um, last, let's see, I guess it was Tuesday night, I was talking to the Dowsers group in the Bitterroot. And that was fun because, you know, Dowsers, they already, <laughs> they're already out there kind of in their own right. understanding of what's possible and, and real. So so I can talk about different things with that group than I can to last Saturday. I was I had a talk at the Montana Historical Society. Oh, so neat. there I want to yeah, there I want to emphasize more the important aspects of Montana history that are ignored because we don't talk about that. You know, so. And how did they react? That's what's interesting. It sounds like you're able to do talks for for groups that are, you know, outside of, of the UFO field, which is exciting, you know, some of these more conventional type of groups, like a historical group, how do they react? Well, um you know, we're kind of in the process of, of figuring that out, but I think that the historical <laughs> evidence is so strong that I I have some very convincing arguments to offer here. Uh-huh. And and these topics are, you know, when we're talking about our nuclear missile silos. That that is a topic that I think everybody at least gets their attention. You bring mm-hmm. that one up. Do they and, challenge you? Do you have some people who kind of ask you some questions that are kind of, seem kind of skeptical, uh, or are a lot of them just really kind of? Excited and and how do they react? Hmm, a different reactions. Some of them get very excited, mm-hmm. especially if they are if they have in fact had their own sightings or their own contact experiences. They get very excited right. because this is affirming to them and it enables them to, I think, reclaim part of their own experience. If it's new to them, I think often their reaction is sort of silence. You know, it's like. Like you know, good grief, <laughs> <laughs> and I and I tell them, this is not easy information to assimilate. It does change our understanding of, frankly, everything. You know, uh, I love what John Mack said. He said that when people encounter this information when they are contactees, abductees, whatever that they go through a process of ontologic shock was the term that he gave to it, and I love that term. Ontology being our, our worldview, how we understand the nature of the world, and and we're very attached to our worldviews. We spend a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, who we are, what we're here for, what it's all about. And when we regularly die for our worldviews, 
we do horrible things mm. to others for our worldviews. We kill for our worldviews. So to challenge one's worldview is, is big stuff, and it often sends people into shock when they have an experience that challenges everything that they thought they've understood about the nature of reality. Right. And that's also true for people who are trying to assimilate this information who have never never gone through that door, who have just allowed that, it's a ridiculous subject, don't even think about it, to be a wall that they've never looked peeked behind. So I I encourage people to be gentle with um, taking it in. It's it's a lot to digest. Mm-hmm. Well, and you are reaching new audiences, and I know you have some ideas of how to reach new audiences with this sort of information. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the book was really the intention of the book was how do I do that? How do I make this more real for people? And I I think that limiting it to a specific geographical area makes it easier for people to digest. And I've gotten mm-hmm. some feedback from some of the old guards, some of the old timers, that this is a, a good way to do it. Because, um, yeah, it just it makes it a little bit more grounded, more, <laughs> more real when we, we know these areas, we know these places, and, and we pride ourselves on, on knowing the history of our regions. Right. So I, I think that there's a value in that. And because somebody is focusing in a particular area, they can go a little deeper. They can collect a few more accounts. I I'm beginning to feel like I've just scratched the surface when I go out and do these these uh, talks or book signings. I'm amazed at the information that comes forward and the people that come out and the stories that they tell me. And I feel like, oh, my heavens, you know, <laughs> there's way too many stories to get in a book, too. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with that. <laughs> just to let people know that it's astonishing how many people have their own stories. Mm-hmm. and And so many of them have said to me, in the past, and I've never told anyone this before. So, um, being able to lift a little, a little bit is is uh, a big hope for this. I've been in social groups, you know, at friends' houses for dinner and talking about this, and had somebody share a story about a UFO that he saw when he was out hunting. You know, this this um, spinning disc, silver disc that came in and hovered over him while he was out hunting. And there's another old friend of his who's sitting. You know, if you see it away from him, he says, you never knew you had a sighting. He said, so did I. You know, I grew up in Roswell. Yeah. And they're like, we didn't know this about wow. each other because we never talk about it. Mm-hmm. So I think that as the lid comes up and as more people talk about it, that will be, that is one of those vectors that I see that's impinging on the mass consciousness that's moving us towards disclosure. When enough people are are reclaiming their own experiences and beginning to share them with their friends and saying, hey, this is part of, you know, Part of what happened, and I feel like Montana is, has a good possibility of being a place where we really can lift the lid because so many people have had these experiences, and because we have had the nuclear missiles and we did have Mariana, and we don't have that many people, we're going to reach at some place we will be reaching this tipping point. And, uh, and there's an awful lot of us that are kind of pushing us towards that place, you know. And for you. Uh, what is the tipping point? Um, where will uh, what would be the signs that we've gotten there? So, for example, uh, when it's okay for people to talk about it, or maybe when it's uh, 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 or does it that include the government talking about it? For you, what is that t- tipping point that kind of uh, is your goal for disclosure? Hmm. Well, I think we're getting close, and I'm not sure it's going to require. U.S. government disclosure. It could come mm-hmm. from another government. I was blown away by um, when Paul Stonehill 
presentation at the uh, UFO Congress a couple of weeks ago when he was talking about Russia and all the amazing things that have happened in Russia. And I had to stop right. taking notes after the first five minutes. <laughs> yeah. There was just case after case after case after case, yeah. many of which I had never heard of before. And then you've got, oh, this is so amazing, that the uh, the new pope that was just um, chosen uh-huh. is from Argentina. He's a Jesuit. Well, in 2009, the director of the Vatican Observatory Father Jose Gabriel Funes, mm-hmm. who is an Argentinian, who is a Jesuit, talks about the fact that um, believing in aliens is not opposed to Christianity. In right. fact, he gave a, um, a talk uh, basically called The Alien is My Brother. So this is the official position of the Vatican is that we don't, this is not a problem for us. Um, and you know, the, the Catholic Church probably has one of the most sophisticated uh, systems of intelligence about what's going on with witnesses of any organization on the planet because of the confessional system. And they're also very good at telling when witnesses are credible or not. They have to decide this all the time mm-hmm. when witnesses um, talk about miracles and when they're trying to decide whether to canonize somebody or not. So I think that the churches are really, and this may be another place where it's already beginning to happen. Father Balducci, who before he died in Italy, did a number of press conferences in Italy where where he said, this is a real phenomenon. So it may be coming from that area. I was also surprised that I have a friend who is a Christian ethicist at, uh, at Boston University School of Theology, and I ran into him in uh, actually in an art museum here in Helena because he was from our, our little college here, Okara College. He was a, uh, a theology professor, and he started the environmental studies program because he's very interested in, in how theology tells us to care for the earth and to be good to the earth. And I had been working for conservation organizations, and I was on the advisory board for the environmental studies program when he started at Carroll College. So we've been good friends, and I ran into him, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm writing this book about Montana UFOs, and he gives me this public and he said have there been events in montana i said oh yeah (laughs) and he says well that's very interesting he says i'm working on a book about christian ethics and extraterrestrial contact oh wow yes how cool yeah and that book is going to be coming out soon it's going to be called um it's called cosmic cosmic comments and it turns out that he was in the hudson river valley when they were having all the sightings in the 80s oh wow So he's had his own sightings and in this, um, he wrote an article. Uh, this a book is going to be called "Cosmic Common Spirit Science and Space." But he also wrote an article for the, the Journal of Theology and Science in 2010, kind of the, the precursor to the book, where he talks about this and how. And he quotes a number of different other theologians and philosophers and ethicists that are talking about this. So it's happening in academic communities, mm-hmm. but not in science. It's the scientists that are dragging their heels. <laughs> and the right. church is leading the way. You know, how ironic. How right. Ironic. It is really funny because there have been scientists who have said, oh, you know, the religions are going to struggle with this when they're the ones who are opening up the conversation much more. Yes, yes. Which is a Except, great thing. Yeah, at least a, a lot of the biologists and some of the astronomers are heel-dragging. But even the astronomers, I mean, the whole extrasolar planet thing, this is another vector, I feel like it's impinging on mass consciousness, mm-hmm. is the excitement about astrobiology. That field is just exploding right now. Uh, you know, young 
college students are excited about it, and and we're all excited because you know we just found out it was in the papers yesterday that that we're finding compounds in Mars that indicate that there was water that could have been drinkable there, and so incrementally, that kind of mainstream field is is making its way in that direction, and and the whole extrasolar planets thing. I mean, we didn't even know there were extrasolar planets out there until 1995. And now we've identified 200 of them, and they're saying that there are probably, what are they saying, a billion extrasolar planets in this right. solar system alone. And in the meantime, Hubble's out there discovering that there are 200 or 300 or 400 billion other galaxies. So, you know, the odds are <laughs> a lot of these astronomers are beginning to say, you know, it's it's highly likely that there could mm-hmm. be some advanced civilizations out there. We don't want to look at the evidence that they're here, because that's impossible, but um, but they're getting closer. They're, they're they're allowing the idea to begin to penetrate that, those walls. Mm-hmm. So that's exciting. Now, in the last few minutes, I know there's another topic that that you'd like to talk about, which is really interesting, and that is consciousness studies and ufology. Yes. Yeah. Um, there are so many connections here, and oh. Uh, I've been a, a member of the Institute of Noetic Sciences for a long time. Right. So really looking at the kinds of things that uh, the mind is capable of. And, and the Institute of Noetic Sciences was started by Edgar Mitchell, who was a Apollo 14 astronaut who went to the moon and has recently become quite outspoken about his conviction that the UFO phenomenon is real and the government cover-up is real because he's known so many people that have told him that. He says, I've never seen anything but a lot of my fellow astronauts have. And he grew up in the Roswell area, and because he has such a reputation, he has been invited to the homes of many witnesses of Roswell, of the Roswell crash, who were sworn to secrecy, but couldn't go to their graves carrying those secrets and needed somebody to talk to. And so he has heard a lot of those deathbed confessions and and end-of-life Confessions of people that were involved. So he's become convinced, and it's become one of his causes to try to move towards disclosure. But he also became very interested in consciousness because he had this experience of when he was on his way back from the moon. He calls it in, in barbecue mode <laughs> because they have to be rotating as they're approaching the Earth so <laughs> to ther- thermoregulate the, the Apollo spacecraft. And so every two minutes, he's seeing the sun, the moon, the earth, the sun, the moon, and is just able to reflect and kind of think about things. And as he's looking out there at space and realizing that the molecules that make up his body are also molecules that are out there and that we are all made of the same stuff, he just kind of flashes into and he's in a reflective mode. He's not trying to problem solve. He doesn't have to problem solve. The other, you know, the other guys are running the controls. He's just kind of in a meditative state, and he has this experience of oneness, of, of just feeling loved and connected with all of it. And and it's it takes him by surprise. It's very profound, and it's deeply moving to him. And when he comes back, he tries to understand that. And the closest thing that he can find to explain it is what they call samadhi in the Eastern traditions, that experience of oneness. But it's it's written about in all the traditions, and all the mystics talk about that that kind of an experience. Mm-hmm. So he wants to bring in scientific method to try to study that and, and help us understand it more and looking at just what is human consciousness capable of. And I have to say, I get a little frustrated with the people that think that robotics and technology, 
that that is the forefront of evolution, that there's going to be the singularity where the robots catch up with human minds and they're going to be as smart as we are and then it's all going to be over, you know? Because <laughs> the human mind is not about just problem-solving and uh, computations. That's that's one of the things we can do with our minds, mm-hmm. our brains, and, you know, and... and we're we're pretty bright. We can do that, but there are other more amazing things that we can do with our minds that robots don't will never do. And, and the whole um, idea of of looking at what we are capable of in the noetic sciences labs, they have yogis who are capable of bending light. Hmm. You know, and when when these astronomers philosophers say that um, the ones who are more theoretical that okay, well. You know, according to the physics laws we know now, yes, there can't be spacious. But what about if we could bend time-space continuum? Right. What about what about wormholes? What about some of these other things? And then we talk about the mind being able to bend light and telepathy, this, this um, ability for the mind to know what's going on. The remote viewers, the tremendous amount of data and examples that are available in the remote viewing literature is just, it's mind-boggling. And it makes us realize that this universe is not about matter, that there is this other thing going on that is consciousness. And it's not like this is new information. Back, uh, Max Planck, back in 1931, I think it was, said that I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. And I think this is the consciousness shift that we are in the process of, is moving from that scientific materialistic worldview that matter is the fundamental stuff of the universe to really getting that consciousness is the fundamental stuff of the universe. Uh, Another quote from Planck that I love is he says that, as a man who has devoted his whole life to the most clear-headed science, to the study of matter, I can tell you as a result of my research about atoms this much, there is no matter as such. The whole um, weight particle Okay, particle is one way one way that it manifests, but the wave phenomenon, the energetic phenomenon, that is um, that's that's where this consciousness study stuff is happening. And I think that the UFOs and these ET contacts, they are all helping us understand that. They're helping us understand that the universe is way more complex, way more profound than we ever understood before. And that's part of the reason I get so excited about this subject is I think that they're helping helping show us that. Yes, I hope so. I mean, um, that gets me excited also. Actually, that's kind of the root of of my uh, drive in this field also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we well, are... Oh, go ahead. I just wanted to say that I hope sometime we have time to sit down and talk more about this stuff because I just love uh, talking about it with other people that are interested in those things. Yeah, for sure. That would be great. And, you know, uh, we got through a lot of stuff. But, of course, we could talk about uh, this a a lot longer, so maybe I'll be back on again. But we're out of time for now. Um, I do have the link for the publisher where to get the book uh, online. Are there any other websites or anything you wanted to point people to? Um, uh, That's probably it for now. There's another Montana writer that I might just say speak up for who has a book out. The the books are often being uh, shown together, and they came out at the same time, and it's a book by Artie Sixkiller Clark, and it's called Encounters with with Star, what is it, with Star Being, Star People, Encounters with Star People, Unknown Stories from American Indians. Oh. And these are amazing uh, stories, which she has been able to collect because she is American Indian. 
And as John Mack said, we need to listen to the experiencers, the contactees. And these stories are amazing. Many of them are from Montana, but they're from all over. And I think that's another wonderful contribution to the literature that's just emerged. Wow, that sounds really interesting. But speaking of wonderful contributions, that's what your book. Thank you so much for being brave enough to put your credibility on the line um, uh, and and write this. Yes, thank you. I appreciate the acknowledgement. All right. Thank you, Joan, and thank you for joining us. It's great to be back doing Open Minds UFO Radio, and it's great to have you back. I'm sure you all are really excited about this, just like we are. And uh, we're doing these interviews and everything right here at our desk, so you can probably hear the doors close. Some of the other people like that, the Antonio guy, and uh, if you know John, our video guy, and Michael, our other video guy, people you might have met at the conference, they're in the back walking around and making coffee, stuff like that. That's what you hear in the background. So you're a part of our Open Minds family here as we work. Join us next week for another great show, and we'll talk to you next week, people. 